morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad that you are here. I love to be around joyful people, don't you? I love to be around people who know how to smile. Uh, glad that you are here. If you are a guest of ours, we're honored to have you with us today. A lot of places you could be today. Uh, glad that you're here with us today. Glad that you're joining us online this morning as well. Before I get started, I just want to say a big thank you to all of you who last week did something. And we challenged you last week to take a step toward getting involved in our 242 life groups. And so many of you took us up on that and uh, filled out a card and made a commitment or at least made a commitment to think about making a commitment. And uh, I'm excited about that. I'll let you know that after worship today, those tables are still going to be set up in the Family Life Center. The coordinators will still be there after worship today, too. If you didn't get a chance last week to go over there and ask questions, talk about it and figure out what it's all about, and you know, maybe take that step, uh, I want to invite you to go over to the Family Life Center after worship today if you didn't get a chance to last week. This sermon this morning... It's a little bit of a, a transitional sermon for me. Now, we've spent several months talking about doing life together and doing church together, the, the work of the church, the mission of the church. Next week, I am beginning a sermon series that I'm calling um, Faith That Works. I'm going to be going through the book of James. James is one of, if not the most practical books in all of the Bible, and it seemed like it made sense to me, kind of a natural progression. We've been talking about what should we do, what should we do, and then, okay, here's what you do. Here's practically what this looks like. So I hope you're here next week for that new series. I'm excited about that. But this morning, I want to kind of bridge the gap a little bit by reminding us why we can be, why we should be so excited to be invited into this thing. To be invited into doing church, doing life together. To be a part of this thing we call the Christian life. You know, so many times we think about our, our Christianity being a bunch of don'ts and can'ts and shouldn'ts. Like it's some sort of life that we've got to endure somehow. You know, some grindstone that we keep our nose to. And yet this thing that we're invited into is this beautiful, wonderful life that Jesus calls the abundant life, the full life. Jesus wants us to live our very best lives, and that's what we're talking about. So, with that in mind, I want to share a phrase with you that we all are familiar with, you all have used many times in your life, I'm sure, and that is the phrase, you had to be there. Now, probably this past week, you were telling somebody a story, you said, well, you kind of had to be there. We use it all the time. We say it all the time. We hear it all the time. And we know what it means. You know, someone's very excited about sharing something that they've experienced, something they saw, something they heard. And they do their best to tell you how unbelievable it was. But then they just stop and finally say, you had to be there. Then you come back from a trip, a vacation. And you're trying to tell people how great the weather was. How clear the water was. How how blue the sky was, how deep the powder was, how quiet the kids were. And you just finally just say, well, you, you had to be there. 
I, I can't really do it justice. I, I can't make it sound as good as it really was. I was able to be at the birth of all three of my children. I, I was in the room with Martha. All three of those births were very special for different reasons. Um, but when I was a young dad, I used to try to tell people how, how emotional it was to be there for the birth of your child. And what I found was, if they hadn't been there, they didn't care. <laughs> it was just a boring story. And then I pretty quickly found if they had been there, if they'd witnessed the birth of their child, all they wanted to talk about was their child. They didn't care about the birth of my child. It was just a boring story to them. You know? So uh, that's okay, I guess. But uh, I want you to think in Scripture about people that you would love to have been there with. People that you would love to have maybe had a conversation with. And I think about things like that all the time. And for me, that would be a really long list of people I'd like to sit down and, and talk to. But at the top of just about any of those lists that I would make, I think pretty near the top, at least, would be the Apostle John, the Son of Thunder, the beloved disciple. Now, John was as close or closer to Jesus than anybody else here in this earth. And I would love to be able to sit down with John and have a conversation with him about all the things he saw and all the things he heard, all the places he went, all the, all the experiences that he had with Jesus, to listen to his passion and to his intensity and his excitement. And yet I got a feeling that if I was actually sitting down with John and listening to him talk about his time with Jesus, there's a pretty good chance he would probably say, you know, you had to be there. As, as much as I'm trying to give it justice, as much as I'm trying to explain this to you, I can't. I, just, I, I can't really share with you the depth of this thing. And I can't really share with you the importance of that moment. You just, you just had to be there. This morning, I, I want to zero in on a meal that Jesus shares with his very closest followers. Uh, it's a meal that we talk about quite a bit. It's the Passover meal in a place we call the Upper Room. Uh, he, has, he shares this meal with his disciples, his apostles, one last time before the cross. John is there, of course. Um, John devotes a great deal of ink to the events that took place in the Upper Room in his Gospel. In fact, 20% of John's gospel is the events of that one night in that upper room. Just as John also that, you know, says, if I were to write down everything I saw Jesus do, and if I were to write down everything I heard Jesus say, the books in the world wouldn't be able to hold it all. That same John devotes almost a quarter of his gospel to the events of one night. 155 verses. John devotes to the events in the upper room. Matthew was there as well, by the way. Matthew tells his story in 18 verses. John puts a lot more to paper about what happened in that upper room. And maybe it's because John understands that there was something very significant going on that night. And there was something very important going on that night. So the Holy Spirit uh, works through John to write those things down for us. Jesus is sharing this special meal with his very special friends. And in the course of this evening, Jesus drops a bombshell on them. Jesus tells them, I'm leaving. 
I'm not going to be here very much longer. And he looks around the room at these men that he spent uh, three years with, and he tells them, I'm, I'm going to leave. And you think about the intensity of that moment. They're, they're there around a table. There's, you know, pieces of bread and glasses of wine that are half empty, scraps of food, you know, on the table. Jesus has been with these men for quite some time. They've got their rhythm down. They know the routine. And then he announces, I'm leaving. And they should have seen it coming. He'd been talking about it. This isn't the first time he mentions that he's going to be leaving. But he says it pretty clearly. I'm leaving. And they should have saw it coming. I mean, he'd already washed their feet by this time, which is very powerful and a little bit troubling to them. They should have known something was different about this night. The way he blessed the bread and the wine, the way he looked at them, they, they should have seen something was different. But they missed it. They didn't realize it. And then he finally says, I- I'm leaving. It's John chapter 13, 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. And no one says a word. No one responds. That kind of just hangs in the air. So Jesus is like, okay, let me go on and share with you some really important information. Let me share with you something you really need to know. Uh, Very next verse. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. We all know that passage, right? We love that passage, that teaching on love, some of the most profound things Jesus ever said right there. I love that passage. I talk about that all the time. Jesus says, um, listen, I want to talk to you about love. But the apostles don't want to talk about love. No, wait. No, wait. Now, they're still trying to process what he just said about leaving. Their minds are working about 30 seconds behind. And finally, it's Peter who speaks up and says, wait, hold off on the love thing for just a minute. Now, hit the rewind button. What did you just say? Before the love thing. What exactly did you say about leaving? And of course, the other 12, the other 11, the other 10, lean in. Yeah, what, what exactly did you say? Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Uh, we don't understand. I, I, I know you kind of changed topics here, talking about love now, but um, we want to talk about what you just said. You said, I won't be with you. You said you were leaving. What are you talking about? And then second half of verse 36, Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Great. It's gotten worse. Not only is he leaving, but we're not invited to go. And of course, again, it's Peter who's not going to let that go so easily. And I love this. This is is so Peter, right? Verse 37, Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? (laughs) Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Peter says, you're probably right about these guys. Yeah, I wouldn't invite them either. But, come on, it's me. 
Why can't I follow you? You know my heart, Jesus. You know my priorities. You know I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, you will follow me. You'll all follow me. Not yet. Just not yet. So these men are left with a very worrisome problem. What are we going to do without Jesus right here with us? How are we going to live while we wait? And so for the rest of that night, before the mob comes led by Judas, before Peter goes and denies that he even knows Jesus three times, before the arrest, before the beating, before the cross, Jesus is going to share with these men some information that he knows they are going to need. Once he's gone, they're going to need some information, some reassurance. And he shares with them words that that he wants them to live by, words I think he wants us to live by as well. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Stay close. Pretty simple, right? Don't be afraid. Trust me. Stay close. Very first thing that Jesus tells these men immediately following his announcement that he's leaving is what they needed to hear in that moment. Don't be afraid. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't worry. I'm going to leave you, but I don't want your hearts to be troubled. Don't be afraid. You know, fear is such a powerful force, right? You think back about the things that made you afraid when you were a kid. I vividly remember begging to go see the movie The Ghost and Mr. Chicken when I was six years old. (laughs) You might not remember that. It starred Don Knotts, and that's why I wanted to see it. Barney Fife. It was this silly, you know, supposed to be a scary movie kind of thing about a ghost in a haunted house. And I begged to go see that movie, and it scared me to death. (laughs) I had nightmares about that movie. There was this scene at the end, if you've never seen it, where Don Knotts is coming up this uh, dark stairwell with a flashlight, and there's this strange organ music playing from this organ loft, and he gets to the top, and he shines the light, and there's this hulking figure playing an organ on bloodstained keys. I remember sitting in the balcony of the Manus Theater thinking, I'm never getting out of here alive. (laughs) That guy is going to get me. I slept with the lights on for months after that. When we were doing youth ministry, I actually found that DVD in a bargain bin over here at Walmart. I got it around Halloween, and I told the teenagers, I've got the perfect Halloween movie for us. (laughs) So we had them out to the pasture. We showed it on the side of the barn. And I told them, this is really scary. (laughs) This movie is really, it's like the perfect movie. It's going to scare you to death. Guess what? It wasn't scary (laughs) at all. In fact, seeing it as an adult, it's it's pretty lame, really. (laughs) And of course, they made fun of the movie, and then they made fun of me. You know, the things that scare us when we're six don't scare us when we're 16. When you're six years old, a scary movie might do it to you. When you're 16, maybe it's the fear of rejection. When you're 36, maybe it's a conversation that you have to have with your boss. When you're 66, maybe it's a conversation that you have to have with your doctor. 
The point being, no matter what age we are, we all know fear. Even though, even though the Bible tells us over and over again, don't be afraid. We all know fear, don't we? We know what it's like to be afraid. We become paralyzed by our fears. You know, they're just a way that they grab hold of us and they consume us. And it gets to be where that's all I can see, that's all I can think about, that's all I can hear. You know, I'm so focused on this thing, this problem, this situation. I, I really can't see anything else. How does fear take control so quickly? And where does that power come from? Uh, Jesus is going to explain to his apostles that the power of fear is a matter of focus. What are you focused on? Remember back a time earlier than this when, when Jesus comes to those uh, men who are on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm. He doesn't come to them in a boat. He comes walking on the water. And they're convinced he's a ghost and they quickly become Mr. Chicken. You know, they're afraid. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's me. And again, it's Peter who says, hey, if it's you, invite me out to do what you're doing. And Peter, or Jesus says, okay, come on. And Peter is, out of the way, fellas. You know, hold my oar. Hey, Peter, you know, we're a long way from shore. I know that. You know, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I can tell time. You know, there's a storm going on. I don't care. Jesus is walking on water. He just invited me to walk on water. Out of my way. And by the way, he's the only one, Peter, who gets out of the boat. Which means he's the only one who walks on water with Jesus. Until, and we know this story, until he takes his eyes off of Jesus. Matthew records it, Matthew chapter 14, when he, Peter, looked around at the high waves, he was terrified, he was afraid, and he began to sink. Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, he switches his focus from Jesus to the problem, to the storm, to the waves. And he's sunk. Literally, he is sunk. <laughs> Jesus reaches out and, and pulls him back up. When we take the eyes of our heart off of Jesus, we are sunk. When we lose focus, we're sunk. You know, God calls us all the time out of our comfort zone. Calls us to, to stretch ourselves a little bit. He opens a door here. He opens an opportunity here. And we've never done that before. We've never attempted that before. And I don't think I could do that. That looks almost impossible. And yet Jesus is saying, no, don't be afraid. Focus on me. Don't be afraid. And yet, usually fear isn't very far away. When we focus on what it is that makes us fearful, we stay fearful. When our focus is on Jesus, we're fearless. His promises, His power, His love. There's no room for fear. At least not the heart-troubling kind. It was David who said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. The prophet Isaiah said, surely God is my salvation. I will trust and fear not. And then Jesus tells his friends, I'm leaving, but don't be afraid. I don't want you to be afraid. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. And then before he could really draw another breath, Jesus tells his stunned friends, trust in God, trust also in me. He tells these men who I think are starting to get the, the impression, okay, something different's going on tonight. He tells them, I want you to trust me. Trust me. I grew up a, a big basketball fan when I was a, a teenager. I was a big Julius Irving fan. I loved Dr. J. He played in the ABA, and then I followed him when he was with the Philadelphia 76ers. But he just played a different game than everybody else. Now, he was the guy playing above the rim. And all you young people who think the athletes now are so great, I'm going to tell you, before anyone did anything, Dr. J did everything. He was amazing. And you might remember a couple years ago, Dr. Pepper had an ad campaign, and Dr. J was their spokesman. And he did a commercial trying to explain and convince everyone how great tasting Dr. Pepper was, and the tagline was... Trust me, I'm a doctor. <laughs> Which, of course, the irony is, okay, you're not really a doctor. Jesus tells these men, trust me, I'm the Son of God. You want to know why you can trust me? I'm the Son of God. And by the way, he really is the Son of God. So says, trust me. But I don't have to tell you, as Americans, we don't have uh, very much trust in really anything or anyone. We, we have a problem trusting, don't we? We doubt. That's what comes naturally for us. We doubt. Uh, we're experts at that. We question everything. Guaranteed to last as long as you own your car. Yeah. Right. This is guaranteed to grow hair on your head or your money back. I'm going to tell you right now, that is not true. <laughs> and you are not getting your money back either. I'll tell you that. But we question everything. We quiz every salesman. We check our receipt at Wendy's to make sure they didn't charge us for the cheese. I mean, we're just geared that way, right? And then we come to church, and somebody like me stands up and tells you to trust in a God that you've never seen, who will take you to a place called heaven that we can't really prove is there because of a Savior that we've never met has taken care of our sins that we could never get rid of ourselves. And by the way, that's exactly what I am telling you because that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, you trust me. No, we call it faith, right? It's faith. And sometimes faith is the most natural, the easiest thing in the world to exhibit. And there are other times when it is really tough. When life starts to happen. Somebody turns on you that you thought really cared about you. There's, there's an issue at work that you're getting blamed for and it wasn't your fault. There's a problem with your kids. Your marriage is circling the drain. Someone that you love is ill. And you start wondering to yourself... Can I trust him? Can I really trust Jesus to know what he's doing? Can I trust Jesus to be honest with me? To tell me the truth? You know, in that same setting, that upper room, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Don't get confused here. I'm it. There's only one way. I'm it. There's only one truth. I'm it. There's only one life. I'm it. It's me. There's no other way. And typically, we decide if we can trust someone based on the track record, right? We look at their history. We decide if they're trustworthy. Question. Has Jesus ever proven himself to not be trustworthy? Or asked another way, when has Jesus ever let you down? When has Jesus ever let you down? You know, we let each other down. I'll let you down. Friends will let us down. When has Jesus ever let you down? I like Paul's comment in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Period. End of argument. Jesus is faithful and he will do it. So in the upper room, Jesus tells his friends, don't be afraid. Trust me. And then he says, stay close. John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. How many times have you read John 15 before? How many sermons have you heard preached on the vine and the branches? How many classes have you sat in and heard people discuss this section of Scripture over and over again? How many times? For me, it's somewhere between a lot and a whole lot. This is a really powerful, important, popular section of Scripture. And for me, almost every time I'm directed to this passage on the vine and the branches... I come away feeling guilty. I come away feeling inadequate. Because Jesus says we're supposed to be bearing fruit. In fact, we're supposed to be bearing much fruit. And if you're not, you're like a a vine that's taken and and torn off and it, it withers and it dies and it's thrown in the fire. You're worthless. By the way, that is exactly what Jesus said. And yet, I don't think on this night, I don't think in this context, knowing what Jesus knows, knowing what's going to happen to him in the next couple hours, knowing what's going to happen to these men in the next couple days and weeks, knowing where Judas is, knowing what Peter is about to do, denying him, I don't think it was Jesus' intention to tear these men down. I I think he's talking about vines and branches here to give them encouragement, to build them up. I think Jesus realizes you guys are going to need this more than ever. You're going to need this. So he tells them, stay close. You stay close to me. Yes, as Christians, we're commanded to bear fruit, much fruit, absolutely. But the good news is, I don't have to do that all by myself. I'm attached to the vine. I'm just a branch. You know, Jesus is going to bear fruit through me. And that's different. That changes things. So I'm afraid if we're not careful, we can become so obsessed with fruit. Where's the fruit? Why isn't there more fruit? Why isn't there better fruit? 
We become obsessed with the fruit. The fruit's out here, the vine's back here. And all we're focused on is, where's there more fruit? We've got to have more fruit. And we forget about staying close, staying connected to the vine, to Jesus. Now, we don't do these things on our own. We do it because we're connected to Jesus. Remain in me. If you remain in me, I'll, I'll take care of the fruit. Yeah, the Great Commission is the Great Commission. But Jesus promises the only way to fulfill the Great Commission is to stay attached to me. You stay attached to the vine. You stay close to me. Whatever's going on in your life right now, you stay close to me. So, what did John hear Jesus say that night in the upper room? He heard Jesus say, don't be afraid. Trust me. Stay close. Which is what you just heard, right? But come on, that's, that's three preacher points. Now, that's easy, right? If John were here right now, telling you what he heard in the upper room, I feel like he would tell me, but really, you had to be there. I mean, I know this sounds kind of sterile. This sounds very Sunday morning. This sounds like ABC. But you had to be there. You had to see the emotion in Jesus. You had to feel the circumstances that these things were said in. I can't explain it. I can't give it justice. I, I, I can't tell you how important this was, how important this is. You just, you had to be there. Well, we weren't there, right? But I'm so glad that John was. And I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit, through John, shared with us what Jesus wanted them to know. And I'm convinced what Jesus wants us to know as well. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Stay close. That's the message this morning. Listen, as a church family, if we can help you in any way, if we can pray with you, we're going to invite you to come to the front and let us know how. Let's go ahead and stand and, and we'll close with a song.